Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hey everyone. When Jimmy and I started this little podcast, promoting inclusion and diversity were at the forefront of what we wanted to do with it. Though throughout the month of June, Celebrate Pride, all of my interviews are focused on queer creators and their projects. I'm also super excited to be able to tell you about our unique t-shirt Pride Month collaboration as part of our June programming. The first piece was finding the right artist, so I enlisted the help of our friend Fellhound. Let's let her tell you a little bit more about it. Hey everyone, this is Fellhound. My design this year for Comic Book Yeti involves a little Yeti on their little Yeti-mobile, spreading the joy of pride and spreading the joy of comic books. When Byron reached out about the artwork for the collaboration, we decided it was really important to focus on the trans community for this project. Nobody is more at risk right now than trans youth, so it's no-brainer to work with Kaleidoscope on it. Please consider picking up a shirt, or you can support their work directly. Thank you. As Fel mentioned, we are working with Columbus, Ohio-based Kaleidoscope Youth Center. All profits from the campaign go directly into their coffer. Board member Brent Fisher is a friend of the Yetis, and I reached out to them to tell you a little bit more about who Kaleidoscope is and what they do. Hello, everyone. My name is Brent Fisher, and I'm on the board of Kaleidoscope Youth Center in Columbus, Ohio. At Kaleidoscope, we're deeply committed to advocating for and empowering queer and questioning youth in Ohio. We're proud to provide a safe and inclusive space where young people can freely express themselves, access vital resources, and participate in educational programs. Our mission is more than just support. It's about fostering a vibrant, resilient community that celebrates the individuality and the potential of every young person that comes through our doors. And we're super excited to be a part of this Pride collaboration with Comic Book Yeti. This collaboration allows us to reach out to more people and spread the message of love, acceptance, and unity that we need now more than ever. Together, we aim to create a society where everyone is free to be their authentic selves. And if you want to learn more about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at www.kycohio.org. And thank you for supporting Kaleidoscope Youth Center. Help us support their amazing work. I'll include a link in the show notes so you can snag a t-shirt for yourself. I hope you enjoyed our Pride Month feature. And as always, thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner podcast. I'm Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts, and today we are continuing our Pride Month focus coverage with the multi-talented Hannah Templer. Hannah is busy promoting the second volume of the award-nominated graphic novel series Cosmonites, and I'm lucky enough to get to chat with Hannah about it on today's show. Thank you for hanging out with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat. Well, before we jump in, let me take a minute just to to pitch how amazing I think this series is. Like, I love it. I like really love it. Um, (laughs) Sci-fi generally is not my jam, but you know, this is delightfully character driven and it feels really balanced between like mixing the elements of the past and the the futuristic while shedding the lens on women's current struggle and our patriarchal society. So it's, it's dope fire or whatever the kids are saying these days. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I think really the only place to start um, with it is page one, because I think it's really, really, it sets the tone for the entirety of it. It's a, it's a dedication to found family, very short, literally three words, to found family. Um, So what does found family mean to you and what made you want to make this as the central theme of the story? Yeah. um, So I, um, I mean, obviously like found family, chosen family is, 
a pretty common theme, I think, for a lot of uh, queer people, Very something very familiar. And for me, uh, it really was the thing that sort of <laughs> saved my life, to be honest, uh, being able to sort of choose who I let into my life and who gets who kind of gets access to me as a person after I came out. I came out pretty late um, as, as an adult. And so that process happened for me at age 26 when I kind of already had a very established life and group of friends and, uh, you know, making the shift to kind of choosing who was safe to be around and who accepted me and uh, making those decisions um, was like a big part of my personal coming out. So uh, that is a huge reason, <laughs> huge part of the reason why I dedicated this series to fan family. Um, and I don't want to get too ahead of the question or anything, but uh, each book is going to be dedicated to fan family. There are three total, and they all kind of explore different facets of it. So the first one um, was sort of about sort of about like Ring of Keys moments and discovering fan family and chosen family. The second one is like the complexities of navigating fan family as an individual and how do you um, kind of navigate like conflict and uh, different ideas and community. So. Yeah, well, comics journalism can't escape the comparison game. So <laughs> it's like this or that, you know, sort of with a flavor of, of something else, you know. And I'm I'm having a hard time, honestly, kind of trying to quantify it. You know, I, to me, I thought of A Knight's Tale, although that falls really short as a comparison. And maybe that's my love for Heath kind of coming through. I love I love A Knight's Tale. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, there's there's like Game of Thrones kind of space where you have political intrigue but it's nowhere near as dark as that um then i went to warrior <laughs> nun but you know maybe that's just a badass lesbian thing so what were some <laughs> of your influences on the project um i there are like kind of different branches of this there's visual inspiration and then there's like writing inspiration um okay. i'd say like a lot of my sort of like visual inspiration comes from 80s cartoons i okay love like Gem and the holograms uh and like barbie and the rock stars the lesser known ripoff of Gem and the holograms um and uh i grew up on like a lot of Hanna barbera stuff so i like in terms of visual aesthetic like i really go for that like bright campy feel which i feel like fits really well with a uh, cast of queer characters but um in terms of like writing i'm really really inspired um by kind of what I grew up on in the early 2000s. Um, I was a teenager in the 2000s, so all of my favorite movies were this like weird era of Disney that uh, was kind of like adult-leaning cartoons, like uh, Atlantis, The Lost Empire. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Tre yeah, Treasure Planet, like that strange little like pocket of films that... Um, just really appealed to me that uh, the the sense of adventure and like the sense of like grand scale. Um, I really loved. I also am like super influenced by uh, the anime Gal Force, which is like a, an old series from I think it the, it started in even the eighties, eighties um, and nineties, um, and it's like a a group of women in space on a spaceship. Like there are a lot of similarities, and uh, I do reference that a lot actually in my art as well um and then another major influence for me is actually metal gear solid i okay. yeah i grew up playing those games i really really adore them uh they're kind of um 
I really enjoy like the sense of like the 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 mixture of like an- anachronistic and like paradoxical like like genre mixing that it does a lot yeah. of like yeah a lot of like magic meets like the military it's fun stuff so uh, i draw a lot of inspiration from that as well <laughs> well you've got book two which is dropping this month i, I want to give people a little bit of background because if they haven't they should certainly catch up on the first volume before buying the second one yes definitely um, <laughs> yeah because i think there's 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 a lot to be missed if they don't you know the the central characters roll right on through the two you've got Han, Cass, B, and Kate with Kara mm-hmm. playing a pivotal role, but kind of more fleshed out in the background in, in the yeah. first book. Um, and as I mentioned, this is such a character-driven story, or that's why I fell in love with it anyway. So mm-hmm. how did you map out how you wanted the core of that group to look? And, and did they have sort of established defined roles from the beginning? Mm, yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I knew... I I am very character driven in the way I, pr- I approach stories, um, and I talk about this a lot. But even in my world building, and like I do enjoy sci fi world building and thinking about like the grand universe. But everything we see is through the eyes of these characters. There's never moments of like me explaining or exposition where I'm like <laughs> talking about the political system or explaining how things work, unless it's from a character's point of view. Um, and so I the story started really small. It actually started as a, I think even as a 10 page mini, maybe it was eight. Like the original pitch that I did was an eight or 10 page story that was just about a girl and her best friend and um, their teens. And there are these like jousting matches. And in the original story, I think like Pan was going to fight for her best friend so that they could like be best friends forever and like go off into the sunset. Um, and it's fun- funnily enough, like I wrote that before I had come out as a lesbian. And so it was like the non-gay version of the story, but it definitely okay. has like, it definitely had gay vibes. I just like hadn't fully processed that stuff yet. Um, and I remember like within a year, I it expanded out into like a 30 page, um, a 30 page like pitch or script, which is what the prologue ended up being, which is, uh, there's a bigger universe and actually like Anne doesn't fight at the beginning like she just helps her friend run away and then it spins out into this uh like larger story so those are kind of the characters I started with and I knew that um I definitely wanted to have like a butch lesbian character um Mm -hmm. in this story which obviously is Cass um and I when I first came out I really wanted to represent that in a positive way because I myself identify as a butch lesbian and uh there, it's better now, but at the time when I wrote it, 2016, there just really wasn't a lot of uh, butch representation. And I would argue still to this day, there isn't a lot of uh, butch representation. Um, so from there, kind of like the characters sort of sprawled out along with the story. Like I really wanted to write a married couple. And then I knew that um, like, I love like the femme fatale character. So of course, like Kate sprouted from that. Of course she was going to be that character. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it happened really organically, just knowing like the story that I wanted to tell. And the story is also very reflective of a lot of my personal experiences that I went through when I first came out, like okay. fighting for my freedom and, uh, fighting for autonomy, like all of that energy definitely came from real life for me. So. Yeah. I mean, I got to read an advanced copy of book two and as much as it seems reasonable without giving too much away, 
we do expand upon the core group. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So what can you tell us about who they are or perhaps how their roles just impact the story? Yeah. Um, well, like I mentioned earlier, like one of the things that I wanted to do with the second book was explore sort of like conflict and community and resolving that, especially like among chosen family, you know, like for a character like Cass, who is very, very headstrong and sort of has her own idea of like what freedom looks like, what, uh, you know, being a lesbian in this universe looks like. She has a very set way of thinking about things and um, she's a great example of what happens when like the loudest person in the group is speaking over everyone else and, um, you know, other people don't necessarily agree or like her ideas about freedom don't necessarily vibe with other characters. Um, so we have this new character, Scotty, who they rescued at the, at the end of the first book. Um, and she's a princess. And we kind of discovered pretty early in the book, this isn't a spoiler, that she is not super keen on actually have, having been rescued. She, she's not a fan of that. She didn't get a say in being quote unquote rescued uh, by Cass. So Cass's vision for her is, you get to be free now, isn't that great? And Scotty's response is, I didn't ask for this. Like I had my own plans. I actually was gonna try and change things like from the inside, which comes with its own set of issues. But um, so Scotty is definitely a, like a major part of book two, one of the newer characters and she goes her, on her own journey. Um, and then Kate is sort of introduced at the end of book one. So we get a lot more of her story during book two as well. Um, and then it's the, <laughs> one of the like core characters in book two is kind of a big spoiler, but we do get to touch base with Tara again without revealing too much. Or spoiling right, of the course. Book. Um, she comes back with sort of her own, I mean, it's been five years. She has her own chosen family as well and her own set of characters that she's going to show up with. Um, and I really, really enjoyed kind of writing uh two sort of parallel <laughs> groups of people in this book um and showing like just the different ways that these characters have like grown into their adult selves um and the third book <laughs> is going to introduce even more new characters so keeping track of, of everybody is very exciting <laughs> yeah well um kate resonated with me um so i have to ask a completely random kate question so <laughs> it's a pretty specific detail but mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm pretty covered in tattoos myself. So mm -hmm. aside from Jaws, they're they're more or less sort of absent in the story. So Kate's really stuck out. Was there any hidden symbolism there? Because it immediately made me think of the Scarlet Carsons in V for Vendetta. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Kate, well, she has a bunch of tattoos. She has, obviously, she has her like trans teen beauty queen. Uh, right tattoo on her arm which uh i'll credit that idea to may rude who i collaborated collaborated with on uh the book and did like sensitivity consulting and her idea um in the first book we were talking about you know it's it's really great in stories to kind of uh be clear about like if a character is trans but often when a character is introduced as trans it's through their suffering and we really really wanted to avoid that like we didn't kate is not a character who's arc is centered around like her suffering and her trans like in her trans identity and so uh may came up with this like brilliant idea of like she has a tattoo and like it's beautiful it's something she got like a specific time in her life and that kind of tells tells us something about her mm -hmm. um kate also has then obviously yes she's covered in roses her last name is rose 
it's also like <laughs> a really corny pun uh, for the third book because I don't want to give too much away, but it's kind of about her like rise back to power and like her history and we get into her backstory and like where she came from. Um, so the roses are sort of her chosen like symbol, okay. <laughs> if you will. And she, um, we find out too, like kind of the time in her life when she got all her tattoos and sort of uh, what those meant to her. But it, for her, it was really like a, uh, like a breaking free of you know a, a binary that she had been placed in. So um, those tattoos are like sprawling all over her. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is really interesting because you talked about um, having a sensitivity consultant. And this yes. is not something I've heard much about before. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting um, at the end, you know, you giving credit and everybody gives credit to all the people they work with. But, you know, I want to give you an opportunity. That sounds really neat and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and plus, I had a note uh, that you worked with your friend Carrie about spaceship modeling. Yes. So <laughs> how did you kind of... When you're when you're bringing people in, because you know initially it's like, oh, Hannah's doing everything. <laughs> yeah. um, so how did you to pull people in to kind of help you? How did you know where you you wanted those kind mm-hmm. of elements to come in? And I mean, specific to spaceship modeling, you know, uh, was how did how do you flush that out? You know, like um, yeah. what what aspects are difficult about telling the story in space? Right. <laughs> yes. That's a lot. Sorry. Um, no, no, I. I love this question because I love talking about like everyone who helped on this book, but um, usually like I do do everything for this book myself. Like I write it, I draw it, I color it. I like do all the pieces. Um, But there are pieces where I feel like, um, especially with the consulting, I worked with a lot of consultants on this book actually. Um, And just like, I think sensitivity consultants are a great way to sort of check yourself. You know, they're not, they're not there to like shield you against criticism and they're not there to make you like a perfect writer. They're a great way to check in with your own biases and with your own like understanding of the world that may have internalized uh, like bad stuff. You may have internalized transphobia. You may, you may have internalized things through the media. You don't realize. So um, working like specifically working with May, for example, May consults on uh, like trans representation in the book. And she's a brilliant writer herself and has like a great sense of, the style of writing that I do as well. Like we're both very in tune with the kind of like campy, <laughs> what we call dyke camp, which is like the butch lesbian sort of sensibilities of storytelling. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And um, so she, she's, you know, also become one of my really close friends working on this project, but uh, she's a really brilliant consultant, has a great eye for like uh, pointing out things that, um, like aren't intentionally harmful of course but maybe our tropes or things that are not like helpful or just thinking in a more like creative way about um trans identity that has been really helpful for Kate's character um and it for Carrie Carrie my friend is a is a 3D modeler and I knew in the second book there were going to be a lot more spaceships and mm-hmm. so I did not want to draw those like I <laughs> I work smart not hard in comics because yeah. you have to because comics are incredibly challenging and on top of that i'm doing a comic set in space with like mech suits of armor and like just some of the most difficult things i could choose to draw and so i have to really be careful about where i spend my energy because i am doing everything and i don't want to waste time trying to visualize like something like a complicated spaceship 
um, when I could pay my very talented friend to make models yeah, based on sense. my drawings. So uh, I sent her some, I have done like 3D stuff in the past because uh, I worked briefly in games like in my, <laughs> very early in my career. So I sent some turnarounds and then she was able to model these like pretty basic, but like very, very helpful spaceships for the book. Um, and then another person I actually consulted with, which was great. There's like a really brief scene in the second book where Kate is styling a wig. And when I got to that scene, I was like, I don't know anything about wig styling. So I contacted my friend, Sammy, who's a wig stylist and they're really great. And they actually like went above and beyond and made me a video of them styling a wig so that I could see the whole process and like exactly what that looked like for them. Um, they do drag and they're incredible. So um yeah they we went through that whole process and I was able to like look at the video and then like take notes and put it into that scene and that scene is maybe five pages long and there's maybe four or five panels where we actually see the wig styling happening but um again like stuff like that I feel like is important to get right and like uh just add a little bit of like detail so yeah, yeah. well one thing that it- I've noticed a lot, I guess, and maybe it, it just happens to be what I've been reading recently, but mm-hmm. is is the space setting an easier locale for queer characters to inhabit? I mean, I, I feel like there's some obvious reasons why, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, right? No. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because there are definitely a lot of, like, space gays. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> there are. Space gays. Um, it's a good question. I haven't really, like... I have a lot of thoughts about why, but um, it's not something I've like thought about broadly before. I think for me, it makes a lot of sense because uh, you have sort of an alternate, like Cosmonites is not set in our future universe. It's a definitely an alter- alternate universe. Like we don't have shared history, um, but it sort of uh, creates a great uh, like capsule <laughs> for like familiar interactions uh, juxtaposed with like a really epic back- backdrop mm-hmm. and for me that really um it's it's helpful to kind of tell a story that like feels familiar but is also really exciting um and honestly for me like the most exciting thing I could think of was like make battles in space again I'm like super inspired by Middle Gear Solids and Oviander's like I love uh that stuff aesthetically so um there's just I think there's something really special about like the mundane (laughs) like conversations you have with your friends and the like drama of queer romance set against like very high stakes and epic space backgrounds and like bright colors um so for me that's kind of the route I took to get there um and you know it's interesting because like in the Cosmonites universe, there aren't really aliens. I didn't really like bring that as like a aspect into this, but I know that that plays pretty like in in other queer fiction that obviously plays a large role, a larger mm-hmm. role than it does in Cosmonites. So, um, yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed kind of how you balanced out um, the plot where you have you're developing a real sense of characters, the queer romance, but there's still plenty of mechanized armored battle sequences, and I think that's a hard thing to to kind of get right. So one of the things that seemed to work well visually for me was kind of how you were playing off panel construction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it seemed like they were more mostly square rectangular panels that we're used to seeing. 
except in the battle sequences where it became less restrictive and freeform. So how did you want to kind of lay out these two elements to separate them enough, but still maintain cohesion, right? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I will say like the first book also has a lot more like rectangular paneling. And I think that's just a product of being like, earlier in my career sure <laughs> yeah yeah is, like, inevitable experienced with like experimenting with layout um but that being said yeah like uh one thing i keep in mind with those like high budget pages quote unquote and high budget i just mean like my energy <laughs> not any like money but um one thing i keep in mind is just like the contrast like i want the contrast between the quieter scenes and then those big scenes to be very very clear and one way to do that is layout um also like i do use like very saturated color throughout the book but uh i go like pretty nuts <laughs> during the battle scenes and really it, like it's awesome i love it <laughs> yeah and I, I just like to kind of hold nothing back um but what makes those scenes at least for me like what makes the big budget scenes impactful is when the quiet scenes raise the stakes in a sort of more subtle way like when we know like more about a character's background or why they're fighting or like where where they are emotionally before they enter like a big battle um it raises the stakes a lot and it like makes things more exciting much more exciting when you know like what is going on not only inside the mech suit but like inside the head of the person who's in the mech suit so sure well we kind of talked about um queers in space i feel like i need a space ghost thing there um (laughs) better voice for that but you you went from futuristic but we're also incorporating some age-old concepts here right we have jousting Mm -hmm. so you took the the simple tournament and and made it ultimately about storming down the patriarchy and liberating these various princesses that, you know, that that's more book one and book two, mm-hmm. you know, it's a much more complex examination. You've kind of gotten into it, you know, where even the the best motivations aren't necessarily always in line with what the greater good might be. So mm-hmm. jousting, were you at like a <laughs> Ren fair and decided, I love jousting. Let's, let's throw that in there. Where'd that <laughs> idea come from? Um, it's really funny because I had I actually only went to a Ren fair for the first time I think last year for the first time or maybe oh, two wow, years okay. ago so I had never been to one which is very okay. exciting. <laughs> um, I did used to ride horses so like I do I do love horses and like the idea of jousting, um, but the like that came more from this desire to want to like juxtapose really anachronistic elements right you've got like the future but we still do jousting like we're still Mm -hmm. doing feudalism i mean feudalism very loose feudalism but like um and like we have a monarchy but we also have all this technology and i think um like where that stems from is sort of like our real world like we do (laughs) we have a lot of like archaic things that have survived and intermingle with like incredible advances in technology but um when we're talking about like access like who benefits <laughs> from like those technological advances and who gets access to those technological advances like just because we have incredible technology doesn't mean that it's like equally distributed or <laughs> equally accessible or um sort of like there <laughs> at all and so um it was like a really great vehicle to um, examine sort of uh, 
the patriarchy <laughs> at large and also um like the concept of like I'm taking a, a class on this right now but the, the concept of like the cyborg and like the the boundaries between like human and machine and like feminine and masculine and nature and man like those like cyborg theory plays a big role in kind of the uh like construction of this universe so okay is that okay i'm asking you to give something away in a sense but are we going to explore <laughs> more of that i get a feeling that's book three to some extent yeah there's a there's a lot of that in book three like i think um obviously like <laughs> kate herself <laughs> has a lot of like if we're talking about like the sci-fi vision of the cyborg like literal like robot attached to human like um we do explore that as well in book three, but even just the idea of like the sort of disintegration of boundary <laughs> and binary um, is like a big, a big thing that we get into in book three. Um, book three is really going to focus on like, um, like if book one is about like beating the patriarchy at its own game and book two is about like the game is rigged, like book three is really going to focus on like the only way to win the game is to not play the game. <laughs> like, what does that look like? And um, again, like with uh, like cyborg theory at large, and like also in in a very sci-fi sense um, in this universe, like that. <laughs> I'm trying not to give too much away. Oh yeah, of course. But like <laughs> that, like that I think does play a big role in book three and just thinking about like, um, like crossing the boundary between binaries and like, uh, like wealth distribution and sort of like, uh, crossing the boundaries between class. Like all those things are kind of big elements in the third book. So, yeah. Okay. It seems like a good spot to take a quick break. Hey y'all. Jimmy recently scored me a signed, personalized copy of Hallow's Eve from Erica Schultz after our interview. You've probably had this problem too. I got this great book. Now, how'd I display this thing? Well, I discovered this great product from Crafty Comics that lets you showcase your treasured comics and they even have options for already slab books too. I got their flex frame, which is amazing as you can customize the backing and it even has interchangeable watercolors to coordinate with your space. I opted for neutral gray to match the blue in my room. You can hang portrait or landscape and it comes with a template to make it easy to ensure that you get it exactly where you want it. To my surprise, my wife who tolerates my comic stuff was actually impressed with the overall quality and look. Win! So if you're looking for the perfect solution to showcase your own collection, visit craftycomics.com online. That's crafty with an I. Use the discount code YETI5 and get 5% off your order. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, it, it seems interesting. I mean, this started as a webcomic in, in early 2019. Um, mm -hmm. I think for a lot of uh, creators, you know, maintaining that publication schedule is challenging. Um, mm -hmm. You know, is, is it kind of easier working on it in this format as opposed to single issues or what seems incredibly daunting to me, a whole mm -hmm. graphic novel? I mean, it's, it's interesting because it feels like what you're saying, you're taking a class, Mm -hmm. I could, if I was doing that, that would totally trip me up. If I was working on it, I'd be like, oh, I can change this. I had it all mm -hmm. gridded out and now I'm going to do this. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, well, so it's funny because the, the way I approach Cosmonites, it's, 
it's technically only a webcomic because it's online. Right. But my approach to it is actually pretty, uh, it's more like graphic, I create graphic novels that I then release online for free. So I do write everything and then thumbnail the entire book. And then I'm working on pages uh, every week after that. But the whole thing is mapped out and I, uh, it's just the way that I, that I write most naturally. But it's funny that you mentioned uh, rewriting and like changing things because doing a webcomic does allow you that luxury which is Mm -hmm. a double-edged sword because with the second book I ended up rewriting like huge chunks of it uh like pretty late in the process and I'm glad that I did it needed it needed those rewrites and I think it works much better um so there's sort of like a (laughs) like a benefit and cost to that but um I generally like I have a pretty good idea especially for the third book now like things are really set in stone and I know exactly how things need to end and how things need to resolve like I don't want to keep going (laughs) after the third book um but the second book definitely had a lot of like nebulous moments where I was like I could go this direction or that and I'd wake up in the middle of the night and be like I'm gonna change everything (laughs) (laughs) too too much choose your fate book for me yeah that's that's I've, I've heard that and I've interviewed people who who do I mean, web comics is a weird umbrella, but yeah, you know, where it, it does trip you up where you have freedom to be able to yeah. change. So, mm-hmm. well, I love getting to ask coloring questions because I'm sort of the perpetual aspiring colorist myself. So mm-hmm. as someone kind of developing this as a web comic, uh, are you working with an established palette from the beginning that you're mm-hmm. adhering to, you know, just so it has that continuity? I mean, we talk about change and like, there's all these things that could influence us with respect to color and, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, um, I feel like, okay, so like at the, like the highest level, I do feel like I have a certain look to my colors. Like I do tend towards more saturated colors. Um, that may change in the future with a different project, but like, this is kind of my first major project and falls really in line with like the style that I, um, sort of move towards naturally. So um you know color lights is super saturated and super bright like a lot of like really really bright exciting colors which I think works with the story um I do plan out <laughs> the colors from the beginning um I the way I color is very much on gut so I try to plan and then I just when I get to the page I do what I feel like works um but there's a couple of things I did with this book I actually made a spreadsheet at the very beginning after I'd written the script of every page. And then I used a scale of one to three and one being like the most intense and then two being like sort of neutral and then three being like less intense again within my very saturated palette, even my least intense stuff is pretty saturated, but I assigned every page sort of this like mood of color (laughs) at the very beginning. Um, I call like sort of just a text only color script. And that was super helpful for me to kind of keep track of um, not going overboard. Because one thing I found with the first book a lot is that I would color something um, and my tendency is always to go very saturated bright. But then, you know, the next scene was had to be even brighter. <laughs> so I'd have to go back and like tone things down a little bit. Um, so like having a color script really, really helped. And then usually what I do is I, <laughs> after I've like sketched all the pages, I pull references and inspiration of colors that I really like, and I sort of attach them to scenes to kind of get an idea of like, I want this scene to feel like 
this other thing that I once saw and it could be a comic it could be like a movie it could be like a picture that I took myself um so um I kind of script my colors that way as well um but once I'm in once I'm in the page and actually doing it often I'll just like go with my gut and go with like what happens on the page um I like in terms of style I definitely like I don't I call I don't know if there's a term for this that's like established already so I apologize if I'm like reinventing new terms or something that already exists but I do something that I call compositional coloring which is like I don't necessarily care about like rendering things accurately so much as using colors and shading to like direct the eye on the page and yeah, so for sure yeah so like I you know I'll often like shade things that uh, or like create like diagonal lines that aren't like technically supposed to be there, but they kind of lead to the next panel. Um, and all that stuff happens like within an individual page um, at the end. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, coming from more of a, the fine art photography background, I'm always working yeah. mentally from Ansel Adams' like zonal system because I, I work in black yeah. and white a lot. So that was something that I was curious about because you don't have super lush backgrounds in the project. Um, mm -hmm. which I think is a plus because it sort of minimizes the distraction. It makes the expression work of your characters like really strong. So mm -hmm. is there is there a trick, aside from the obvious, I guess, of of adding depth to an individual mm -hmm. panel, you know, with the mm -hmm. coloring? Um, yeah, I find that you can do a lot with very little <laughs> with coloring, especially with backgrounds. Like I actually did a coloring tutorial recently um, where I like, uh, basically showed my process and like all of Cosmonites is actually very, very flat. Like there are very, very limited, <laughs> there's very, very limited rendering. And what I spend most of my time doing when I'm coloring is picking exact colors. And you'd be surprised how much you can get out of like <laughs> tweaking a blue very, very slightly so that it sets off like an orange next to it or a pink in a different way and suddenly it doesn't look flat anymore because you have like perfected the exact like hue saturation value that makes it um look uh like look special and eye-catching in a way that kind of like <laughs> distracts from the fact that it's flat yeah um, of course i mean these are the tricks <laughs> of the trade right that's what yeah. i'm asking for yeah exactly so um but I mean, if you really dig into like how Cosmonites looks, like it's all flats and then one layer of like a color block shade. I don't, I try not to add. And I think like the more stylistically, the more that I add, the more I'm unhappy with the page. Like I'm always happier with it, with like simpler lines and shapes because I like the focus is on the characters. I'm not yeah. like big into like rendering super detailed backgrounds. I don't think that works for the kind of storytelling that I'm doing. So yeah. Well, what is your background anyway? Did you go to school for illustration or? Um, I actually didn't. I am a UX designer oh. by trade. Okay. So I worked, yeah, I worked uh, like full time as a UX UI designer uh, all through my 20s. Um, and actually when I came out is when I made the switch over to cartoonist. Like doing Cosmonites was sort of like a a leap into a new career as well as a new lifestyle for me so that all coincided with like some really big life changes um but as a result like my way of thinking about comics and layouts and like process is very 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 systematic <laughs> and very organized because I come from a background of doing wireframes for websites and like yep. 
being very, very organized with all my stuff, um, which I think has helped me a lot actually in comics because you have to be organized when you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of pages with hundreds of drawings on them. So, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I always feel stupid asking this as the straight white cis guy in the room, but I've been constantly assured that it's not a dumb question, so I'm going to keep doing it. In terms of queer representation in comics, mm-hmm. are we there yet? And I guess, you know, if we aren't, what does the glass ceiling look like? Mm. Um, that is a good question. I don't, I mean, no, is the short answer. We're not there. Okay. <laughs> I think there's a lot of, a lot of reasons for that. Um, I mean, if we want to talk about like, just on the page in terms of representation, like, sure, there's a lot of diversity and like, Technically, there are a lot of characters that are of diverse backgrounds, but if you zoom out to like the creators and not only like the people who are attached to projects, but the people who are able to survive and live off of comics, like I think Mm -hmm. that's where you run into issues because like I do not particularly care about like the diversity of fictional characters if like their real life counterparts are not benefiting and not able to live comfortably from what they're working on. Sure. Um, and there's a huge there's a huge gap in that. Like, sure, there are a lot of like diverse characters, but they're written by a lot of white people, including myself. Like, <laughs> and that's a that's definitely a problem. So I think when um, we're talking about like queer representation, um, what I'm always focused on is like how <laughs> again how is how is that representation like b- benefiting the real life people behind those characters and behind those identities. Like I, um, you know, are they being paid fairly? Are they able to live, like live a healthy, fulfilled life if they are creating comics? Does it pay them enough kind of to um, support themselves? Which unfortunately, like, no, (laughs) the answer is no, it does not. It's very, very challenging. to be in comics but especially especially even more so as a marginalized person so i guess it's kind of my <laughs> roundabout answer about um representation okay yeah. well what else what else are you seeing in comics or kind of more broadly in different media right now that's inspiring you um oh my gosh so much i so i i have my like solid favorites that have been my favorites for years right i've got um like Sam Bosma's fantasy sports. That's always my like go-to favorite comic. Um, I read Barbarous online, which is this like incredible web comic by Yuko Otan Anand Hirsch. Um, some of my favorite stuff that's like more recent. Um, I like Piao's like X Mag series have been really inspirational to me. Um, their last issue, it was all about Becca. <laughs> which was incredible for my work. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I also, there's also a lot of great local cartoonists in Baltimore who are doing really exciting work. Um, got like Shanti Fortson uh, works here and they're uh, incredible illustrator. They're working on a book that I'm really excited for. Uh, Sunby has a book out in July called Firebird that I'm very, very excited for. Um, so I'm, really inspired by kind of the work that is being done uh, immediately here. Oh, and also my friend Mars uh, has a book coming up called Brownstone. Um, okay. That's through Harper Alley, I believe. But um, a lot of like really exciting work just by local cartoonists here in Baltimore that um, 
I am really inspired by like most of my closest friends. Um, and I, I mean, I, outside of comics, like I am very, very excited and inspired by like some of the, I mean, now is not the most, <laughs> the most like pleasant time to be talking about TV and TV writing, but like there's, yep. you know, there is, there are some really interesting like shows and things that, um, when all the pieces come together are really exciting to watch. I, you know, I love Succession, uh, Better Call Saul, like the shows that you can just tell, like everything fell into place <laughs> and like mm-hmm. really exciting things uh, in terms of writing are happening. Um, that has been uh, super inspirational as well recently. Well, it's cool to hear that Baltimore has its own little indie comic scene because, okay, you hear about Portland or you hear about Chicago mm-hmm. and then people are on these weird islands you know, sort of mm-hmm. all over the place, but it sounds like Baltimore has got its own thing. Yeah. Baltimore has a great comics community. Um, that's partially because Micah is here. So, uh, there are like some micro grads that stay, although I'm not a micro grad, I just came here cause <laughs> I like Baltimore. Um, but yeah, it has a great comic scene and I'm always like champion, champion, championing, like move here, <laughs> everybody move here. It's great. And like, it's an affordable city to live in. And also we have a great community of artists and like we support each other so yeah yeah cool. I, I visited baltimore a lot um many many times down the years working shows and it's it's like oh, a yeah. super cool city if i was going to live in the northeast that's where i would want to live it's that's yeah. a big city i guess yeah it's great well my last question here in terms of like being nosy as you mentioned an obsession with like tabletop role-playing games in your bio so mm-hmm. what are you playing <laughs> Oh gosh, it's funny because I actually haven't played in a little while. I wrapped up a fifth edition D&D campaign uh, okay. last year, and actually, I credit uh, like tabletop role play games to sort of like connecting with my lesbian identity. It's pretty wild, but like role playing can be very therapeutic, and so sure. I kind of figured out that I was gay by playing a gay character. Okay, <laughs> um, so it's like very very special. But uh, I just racked up a um, campaign with with my friends here. It's just a it was just a fifth edition campaign, and I played a rogue uh, who was like a middle aged woman going through like a mid- midlife crisis and stealing everything, and that was great. <laughs> Got to like live through that. Um, and uh, I also a- another one I have to shout out is uh, Thirsty Sword Lesbians, which I did work on. So. Um, you know, I did some illustrations for that project, but it is a fantastic system. If anyone is interested in like a system that's very um, like respectful of its players and also like very flexible and really, really fun for role playing um, and sort of exploring, like it has like romance mechanics, but it also has like really fun, just like role playing non-romance mechanics. It kind of is very flexible and can be what you want it to be. Um, so I highly recommend that as well. Um, and hopefully I will get back into role-playing games soon. I think we're starting a new campaign, but we've all been a little busy in our group. So we're waiting to get that going. It's nice. very cool. Well, I made a note of it. Like I'll have to check that out because <laughs> yeah. I was unfamiliar with that one. Yeah, no, it's, it's really great. Um, the creator is like a really fantastic, um, has like a, a background in law and like is really fantastic with like making sure that the system is really accessible and like, um just like a great supporter of like the role-playing community so 
Well, I always wrap up asking about the hustle. So in the last few days, especially with the Twitter hashtag, comics broke me, you know, like making the rounds everywhere, pretty damn dark. So trying to keep a positive lens, yet realistic, what's your piece of advice for someone trying to make it in the business or thinking about a career in the medium? And and no, get a sugar mama, because I've heard that I don't know how many times. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it is really, really tough. I'd say, and you know, obviously this conversation has been, um, yeah, at the top of everyone's mind right now. And I think the big takeaway is that, you know, even your favorite creators are not doing so hot. Like, um, it is a really, really challenging industry to quote unquote make it in, especially if your goal is to like live off of comics or like, uh, make money off of comics very very challenging um there are a few like lucky stories obviously from people who do like make it and that's very exciting but it's really really luck based um i would say like <laughs> um it's challenging to give like <laughs> general advice because everyone is coming from such a different place and i do think like the ability to even take projects in comics means that you have some sort of like financial security like for me I paid off my loans in my 20s because I had a full-time job for a long time and that enables me now to, you know, work uh and take on a lot of work. Um <laughs> work a lot of hours every week and not and kind of like make things work that way. Um I would say <laughs> like keep keep something for yourself. It's kind of the advice I give people like if if your goal is to make money off of comics and live off of comics, then like your work has to be very commercial and you have to be willing to do like IP work and you have to be willing to work a lot and very fast. But if your interest is in like creating comics as an art, like take care of yourself and your basic needs, whatever that looks like, it may mean that you need a different job in a different field or you need like someone to support you and you need some sort of like financial support that is not directly from comics because, um, like the thing that I keep for myself is Cosmonites. Like it is published, but my contract is I I do those books on a very, very low advance and then I uh, get a high percentage of royalties. But that means that to support myself, I have to be doing a lot of other work. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing that I keep my for myself is Cosmonites because that gives me energy and that kind of is my passion project that I have a lot of control over and a lot of creative say and that really keeps my joy I think if I was only doing IP work that would be a problem for me like I wouldn't I wouldn't still be in comics um and I think how that looks is going to depend on the individual and kind of where you're coming from it may be that like you can only work on comics like an hour a week if that and like if that's the situation that you're in like keep making that that hour like keeping that for yourself and not giving that away um i think is super important but it's just hard out here <laughs> it's really really tough like even myself i i work like 60 to 70 hours a week pretty like consistently so um it's definitely it's very very challenging that's brutal yeah yeah, yeah it's been disheartening to see all that lately but mm -hmm. um so what's uh, what else you got on your plate um you're starting work on the web version of cosmonauts so that'll end up being book mm -hmm. three right mm -hmm. yep 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 uh yeah i'm working on book three i'm writing it this summer um i am also i'm working on a like i don't know how much i can talk about it yet because i don't know if it's like technically being announced 
but I'm working on a middle grade uh, book series with Scholastic right now. So I'm adapting some middle grade books into nice. graphic novels, which is like a great stable source of income for me. <laughs> so um, that's sort of what I'm saying about like Cosmonites is my passion project. And I do sort of like a day job in comics doing other stuff like that. And I do enjoy that as well. Um, and that's pretty much all of it right now. Um, <laughs> I really want to get Cosmonites wrapped up finished so that I can move on to my next big project. Like I said, there are going to be three books only and then it ends. So um, I'm excited to kind of get into the third book and get that done. Yeah. yeah. Well, where can people find you online? Um, <laughs> this is a funny question because everything is collapsing right now. It feels I like know. <laughs> you can find me as Hannah Templer on Twitter. That's like pretty much the only social media I use. And if Twitter collapses, I don't think I'm going to get another platform. <laughs> um, but you can read Cosmonites online for free at cosmonites.space. That's not going to change. It's not going anywhere. Um, and my site is hannahtemplar.com. If you feel so inclined, I am on Patreon, and that's a, like a great place for people to read ahead. I do post like everything early on Patreon, so um, I will be posting more about like book three and posting the pages early over there. Um, and I'm just Hannah Templar over there as well. So, well, yeah. Cosmonites book two is out this month. Um, I'm going to beat on the drum that I beat on all the time. If you want more queer stories to read you have to buy the books. So please, please buy book one first, catch up on everything and buy book two. It, it's a really wonderful story. I hope everybody picks it up. So Hannah, Thank thanks you. for coming on the show today. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and hanging out. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, this is Byron O'Neill. On behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.